Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court here in Washington for Law360. And joining me from New York is not Natalie Rodriguez. It is producer Steve Trader. Jimmy, it is such a pleasure to be here, but I just want to double check. Like, this isn't some sort of April Fool's joke, right, where we're recording for a minute and then all of a sudden, like, somebody throws water in my face and Natalie jumps in and is like, just kidding, I'm still hosting. No, I wish okay. that were the case, okay. but no, you are really, Good. you've been invited on the show just to <laughs> fill in for Natalie, who's out this week, and you we're happy to have you. You know I love listening to you guys every week. It is part of my job, for sure, but I do love it, truly, and so I'm excited to talk about the Supreme Court with you, and just... Uh, keeping in line with the April Fool's Day theme, even though this did come a day early, is that what happened yesterday during oral arguments when an attorney for the NCAA referred to uh, Clarence Thomas as Chief Justice? Now, this would be the point where producer Steve would just like p- plug the clip right in, right? Yeah, that's right. I do, I do have control over these things, so I think I will play that clip now. Well, the, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, the, the amateurism rules that Thank the eligibility, motion, by the way, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but I'm sure you would be terrific at that. <laughs> Justice Thomas. Uh, let me just say, there's no, the, there's no opening, Mr. Waxman. I, there's nothing more I can say that will not get me into trouble. So let me answer Justice Thomas's question. <laughs> That's great. (laughs) You got to love the, I I love multiple aspects of that, but the attorney just being like, you know what? Let me just go ahead and stop myself (laughs) right here and get back to this. But I love a good, witty justice response. Obviously, the sharpest legal minds in the country, but they're really funny sometimes. Maybe they just crack jokes to each other all the time in their chambers and stuff instead of like debating these hot button issues. I know. I feel like that moment deserved like a live courtroom audience of <laughs> laughter, like, you know, a la Seinfeld or something like that. I mean, Roberts has been known to offer a good deadpan delivery. There was one time when the lights actually cut out in the courtroom and he chimes in and he goes, I knew someone should have paid that bill. Yeah, well, and and this doesn't even happen if if we're in live arguments because Clarence Thomas probably isn't asking any questions. So there's just a whole. It was a great moment yesterday. Um, really fun for you to uh, have found that one. Um, we had a really busy week at the Supreme Court. Um, it's Thursday, obviously, so opinions are starting to pick up. So we have a couple of those to go over. We have an order from Monday that we're going to jump back to. We had that oral argument yesterday in the NCAA um, athlete compensation case that we're going to talk with uh, senior sports reporter Zach Zagger a little bit later on. Um, but let's get into these opinions. Now, there is one uh, that that you're going to start us off with here. It's a, um, it's a water rights dispute and a case that's kind of near and dear to your heart a little bit. We, we can maybe or maybe not get into those details. So before we get into that, um, the court hands down a unanimous decision in Florida versus Georgia this morning. Uh, This is written by Justice Amy Coney Barrett in her second high court uh, majority opinion. And the decision throws out a lawsuit from Florida against the state of Georgia over its water consumption from the Apalachicola-Chattahoochee-Flint River Basin. So I I think I got that all in one take. I think you, you nailed it. Okay, good. 
so Florida brought the original action in the Supreme Court claiming that Georgia's high water consumption levels from the river basin had decimated its oyster fisheries in river ecosystems. But the court agreed with a special master that Florida had failed to prove those allegations, uh, and you know, i.e. that Georgia was actually at fault for the harm to its fisheries and ecosystems. Um, and, you know, Justice Amy Coney Barrett writing for the court, she's quick to point out that they're not scientists on the Supreme Court and they lack the expertise to settle the debate of who's at fault, but she doesn't really spare Florida from her analysis of the record and says that they allowed unprecedented levels of oyster harvesting in the years before the fisheries collapsed and failed to adequately reshell its oyster bars, which is the process of like putting actual shells in that oysters can use as habitat. So basically saying to Florida, you know, don't throw stones, okay? <laughs> good, 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 humble approach from Justice Barrett, who um, it's good to see her opinions uh, coming out and um, good to see her sort of say, you know, I'm I'm pretty smart when it comes to certain things, but uh, I'm not a scientist here. So uh, that that's good. And for all the uh, potential wannabe oyster fishermen out there <laughs> um, who, you know, maybe. If one day, say 25 years from now, we're not doing a Supreme Court podcast anymore and you're trying to transition to jobs, I think you mentioned that you might be interested in that. A, a little context here uh, for the listener. <laughs> I, In the course of my lobbying to include this decision on today's episode, I let slip that I've always harbored the I, the fantasy of becoming an oyster farmer in as a, as a backup to a, a journalism <laughs> career. So at least it doesn't look like it's going to be happening in Florida anytime soon, but maybe on, you know, let's say Maryland's Eastern shore, but sorry, sorry to put you on the spot like that. As soon as you shared that detail, I was like, Oh, we're definitely talking about this case today. And, and, and for that matter, I've always wanted to be to to design auto dialing equipment. <laughs> and so this next opinion actually has to deal with that. Um, so maybe you could talk us through this one too. Now very, this is, very this, smooth. This transition. is a this is <laughs> <laughs> well done. I, I listen I listen to the masters do it all the time. So in another unanimous decision handed down on Thursday this morning, the Supreme Court unanimously sides with Facebook in a putative class action involving the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. So basically, a plaintiff who received unwanted um, new login security alerts, you know, when like you get a, an alert uh, from Facebook if someone signs into your account from a new device. Well, this person actually didn't have um, a Facebook account that was associated with that number, so it was an unwanted, erroneous message. And he kept receiving these. He brought this putative class action under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. And basically, the case goes up to the Supreme Court, which is asked to decide whether uh, Facebook's login system, you know, the the new alert login system, the, the process by which they send out these messages about new devices, whether that constitutes an auto dialer um, under the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. That would actually put it on the hook for potential TCPA liability. And writing for a unanimous court, Justice Sonia Sotomayor says that the TCPA actually defines an auto dialer as something that uses a random number generator to produce or store phone numbers. And this definition, she says, excludes equipment like Facebook's login notification system, which does not use such technology. So a big win for the social media giant now not having to face that TCPA class action. 
Definitely a hot button issue, auto dialing, TCPA. Um, so that was interesting to see the justices weigh in on that. So as you said earlier, there it was three unanimous rulings today. And the third one that came down was in the case FCC versus Prometheus Radio Project. Uh, this opinion was written by Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And the ruling was that the FCC's decision to repeal or modify ownership rules that limit the number of radio stations, TV stations, or newspaper that a single entity can own is not arbitrary and capricious. And you gotta love a good legalese ruling because everybody knows what that means. So basically, if I could explain this just really quickly... There were rules in place at the agency that had, you know, banned broadcast newspaper and television radio cross ownership, cross station advertising agreements. And there was also a rule that was sort of meant to promote uh, diversity of viewpoint. And in 2017, the FCC decided to scrap those rules. And so public advocacy groups argued that the agency was obligated to give more consideration of the potential effects of deregulation on female and minority ownership. But the unanimous ruling on Thursday found that the agency had made a reasonable conclusion. Um, So it's kind of a long quote, so I'm going to paraphrase here. But uh, Kavanaugh basically says that, you know, in assessing the effects of the rule changes on minority and female ownership, quote, The FCC did not have perfect empirical or statistical data, but that is not unusual in day-to-day agency decision-making within the executive branch. And Kavanaugh also notes that, you know, there's really nothing in the Administrative Procedures Act or the Telecommunications Act that requires that sort of um, uh, evaluation. So the justice continues, you know, in light of the sparse record on minority and female ownership and the FCC's findings with respect to competition, localism, and viewpoint diversity, the court cannot say that the agency's decision to repeal or modify the ownership rules fell outside the zone of reasonableness under the APA, end quote. So I thought that that was a pretty interesting take. Jimmy, what are your thoughts on that? I thought it was interesting because of the deferential standard that the justices adopted under the APA. Yeah. This has been like an issue that we've seen at the Supreme Court for a while now, and it's just how much deference the justices pay to some of these administrative agencies. And so to see, um, you know, a unanimous decision from the Supreme Court basically adopting a broad deferential view here of an agency's decision to repeal these long-standing regulations. I, I think a lot of them date back to like the early 70s and, and I think even one of them in the 60s, um, I think is, is pretty fascinating. And potentially we could see some spillover effects in other administrative law cases. I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's pretty early days just reading through the, the fine print of the decision here, but uh, it could be interesting to see it rear its head in other contexts. Right, right. All right, so we're going to jump back a little bit to earlier in the week with the Supreme Court uh, to an interesting order that uh, the the justices took up on Monday. Jimmy, you had explained this case off there to me as an abortion case that's not really an abortion case. So what, what what's this one about? Yeah, there are a lot of blockbuster abortion petitions pending before the Supreme Court, you know, challenging Roe versus Wade and the like. This is not one of those. Um, this asks actually whether the Sixth Circuit properly barred the Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron from basically taking over the legal defense of a state law that bans certain second trimester abortions. So just very quickly, Cameron sought to intervene after the Sixth Circuit blocked the law last year, and Kentucky's health secretary, which had then been leading the defense of the law, opted against 
an appeal. So the underlying law actually uh, prohibits dilation and evacuation, which abortion rights supporters consider, you know, a very common second trimester abortion method. Cameron's office, um, the Kentucky AG's office, has characterized the law as a prohibition on abortions in which an unborn child is dismembered while still alive. So a very controversial subject matter simmering beneath the actual legal issue in this particular case, which will just be limited to the question of Cameron's defense, because the Supreme Court didn't actually agree to review a question about the legality of the underlying law. Uh, Cameron's petition says the panel's refusal to allow Kentucky's AG to defend the constitutionality of Kentucky law is an affront to state sovereignty. The Sixth Circuit closed the courthouse doors to the very person that Kentucky law empowers to represent the Commonwealth's interests in court. We will see this one next term when it comes up, but um, like I said, an abortion case, that's not really an abortion case. So moving on then from uh, the order taken up Monday to oral arguments on Wednesday. Now, there was three oral arguments this week. Um, a, a, a big one happened on, on Wednesday morning in a pretty significant case uh, involving the question of the NCAA and student-athlete compensation. Uh, a, a pretty interesting uh, topic of discussion. It seems like everybody has an opinion on this. Um and it seems like maybe one of the most important opinions that's going to come out on this is going to come from the nine justices themselves. To walk us through what happened at oral arguments is uh, Law360 senior sports reporter Zach Zagger joining the show. Zach, thanks so much for joining the term today. Oh, thanks for having me on. I think it's my first appearance on this uh, podcast. So looking forward to discussing the issues with you guys. So there was a moment yesterday during oral arguments in which Justice Breyer asked the attorney representing the NCAA, you know, what is your complaint exactly in this case? And that's, you know, always makes for a fun moment. But luckily, we have you on the show to kind of talk us through this. Let's start with some basics here. You know, what what is that issue? You know, how, how did this bubble up to the Supreme Court? And, you know, how does this case differ a little bit than than other litigation we've seen involving the NCAA paying student athletes? Uh, so, yeah, th- thanks, Steve. Um, first of all, let me just say, I don't think this case is necessarily about whether players should or should not be paid. It's more uh, properly framed as whether they can be paid under NCAA laws. And uh, the way this case started was it was a group of college athletes and uh, or a, a number of college athletes brought lawsuits and they got grouped into a class action involving three classes, uh, a class of college football players, and then a class of men's and women's ba- uh, college basketball players. Those are the three most revenue generating sports in, 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 in the college athletics. Um, and they were basically arguing that the NCAA's myriad rules that they use to maintain its system of amateurism uh, function as an agreement by all the schools to cap what athletes can be paid, uh, what they can be paid for their services uh, in athletics. Uh, And and so it's essentially they're saying, you know, hey, we have more value. We bring value to the schools uh, by playing on your sports teams. And you're agreeing to limit what we can uh, receive. And and those limits are basically capped at the cost of attendance of the school. So they can receive scholarship, room and board, uh, and some other uh, cash payments in order to cover the cost of, uh, of playing sports. But the NCAA has said, any more than that, it would kind of destroy what makes college athletics so great. Uh, and it would turn college athletics into making them all professionals rather than amateurs. And you made the point that this isn't necessarily about you know, unlimited salaries for college athletes. This particular case is about compensation that's tied to education, which I understand is a restriction that the NCAA has had in place on its schools for, for many years. Just kind of tell us a little bit more about this 
restriction on compensation tied to education? What are some of these benefits that the, the athletes would otherwise be entitled to were it not for these rules? Yeah. So the athletes in the lower courts had basically argued that the whole system, you know, was functioned as a cap on their pay and therefore violated the antitrust laws. It was an agreement by all the schools to cap their labor costs. Um, but at the Ninth Circuit or at the, what the lower court eventually ruled and what the Ninth Circuit affirmed was uh, quite uh, narrower. And basically the, you know, the court looked at the system and they said, NCAA, I, I agree with you. If we just allowed unlimited payments that may cause a problem. It may destroy some of what makes college athletics popular among fans and the people who watch and follow college sports. So they said that makes sense, but like there really is no justification or reasonable justification for capping any kind of payments that are tied to education. Uh, and so that could be a series of things from payments for instruments to computers, to equipment, to, uh, to do lab work uh, and a number of other payments uh, that are tied to what the student athletes, as the NCAA calls them, need to complete their studies. I think where it gets into some tricky issues is they also said you can even award uh, cash payments for academic achievement uh, in the form of academic achievement awards, just as the, just like the NCAA allows uh, certain levels of uh, awards for uh, cash awards for uh, athletic performance. So, for instance, if a college athlete makes a college football player, say they make a bowl game, they can receive um, Xboxes or Playstations, Visa gift cards, uh, a myriad of benefits, and in some cases, cash. And the Ninth Circuit uh, affirmed this ruling from the lower court that said, well, you know, if you're going to allow that, you can allow the same amount in academic achievement awards. And you could set different standards on that. You can say you have to get all A's. Or if you, you know, make the dean's list, you get a few thousand dollars. And uh, so that's essentially what the ruling was that went to the Supreme Court. And the NCAA didn't even like that. They, they want to be able to maintain complete authority to, to decide what kind of payments are allowed and are not allowed. And their argument is essentially that if you pay these athletes or allow these athletes to get any more than what we say, then they're no longer amateurism because we define amateurism. And they went to the Supreme Court and they said, uh, instead of arguing about, well, you know, if we pay them more, will this like ruin college sports or not? They, they, they kind of switched their argument and said, hey, look, the, anti the courts uh, under the antitrust law shouldn't have any role, any say over this. Like we are the ones that say what amateurism is. The Supreme Court has called it called this the revered tradition of amateurism, and it serves a number of benefits, both by maintaining the popularity of college sports, but also it, it helps the schools serve their non-commercial uh, purpose of educating students. And so what you need to do is you need to make it the law that like, hey, courts defer to what we say is good and what's not good. And uh, so give us a little abbreviated look under the antitrust law. Let's not get into all this stuff where we have to go to court and defend our every rule that we try to make and defend what is or is not education related or what is or is not allowed. And so that's really what, what happened. And that's how the case got to the Supreme Court. So, I mean, once they were at the Supreme Court then yesterday during oral arguments, it seemed like they leaned pretty heavily into that argument for, you know, sort of diluting the amateurism and why people watch college sports. And also this argument about, you know, the floodgate of litigation being open Um that got some pretty big pushback from several of the justices who had some some pretty 
tough questions for that line of thinking. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how the justices seem to be kind of leaning with that argument? Yeah, the justices really seem to get the whole picture here. They, I mean, they, they were really concerned about what is the impact on the athletes. And they really pushed back on the NCAA and questioned them. Uh, what, why should we look at the way you're saying? Why, why shouldn't we look at this as just merely being a cap of labor costs, just like it would be in any other industry? And seem to really question why the NCAA should get special treatment here under the antitrust laws. And we saw that from a number of justices on, you know, uh, uh, on, you know, both the left and the right, you know, if you look at it that way, but we, we saw it from uh, consistently across the justices questioning that uh, at the same time that, you know, they, they, they uh, hammered the athletes um, on, you know, if we do say that antitrust courts can, you know, examine these rules and determine that they're good or bad, um, is that going to open up the floodgates to litigation? Um, you know, is the NCAA going to be in court all the time defending every little rule and every little thing that it does? Uh, and I think Justice Roberts described it as a game of Jenga. You know, if we take out this log, or is another log going to be coming out, another log, until the whole thing falls down? Um, and is that really the ultimate um, uh, result here? Yeah, you wrote a really interesting uh, piece on the oral arguments yesterday, and it was interesting to see the justices kind of try and thread that needle. On the one hand, they seem to be pretty disturbed by the facts. You had Justice Brett Kavanaugh say at one point, I'll say that to pay no salaries to the workers who are making the school billions of dollars on the theory that consumers want the schools to pay their workers nothing, that just seems entirely circular and even somewhat disturbing. And then later in the argument, as he's questioning an attorney for the athletes, he says, like, where can we draw the line? Because it doesn't seem like the court really wants to just wholesale get rid of the idea of amateurism in college sports, right? Yeah, I, I think that too comes goes back to the Ninth Circuit uh, and, and the lower court holding, where they did kind of agree with the NCAA that amateurism is good. And they said, well, we can't just allow unlimited payments, So, but we can allow education-related payments. And so I think the justices obviously are concerned here. Um, they don't want this to completely destroy college sports or they, they seem to concern that they didn't want to destroy college sports because, and the NCAA has argued, you know, this is the defining character of our, of our product. And if we can't do that, then our product is, we don't have a product. So uh, uh, I think they were looking to thread the needle as, as you, as you uh, phrased it. Um, yeah. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see where they, where they ultimately land on this. Um, it could be a case where we have multiple opinions uh, and we have to kind of look at, you know, where, where they uh, all line up. Uh, but I have talked to some experts and they seem pretty confident that we, you know, we could end up maybe with a 9-0 decision here uh, in favor of the athletes. It'll, the question may be to what extent, how, how much in favor, are they going to go further than the Ninth Circuit and the lower courts did to open the door up more, or are they going to basically affirm and, and, and keep it similar to what um, the Ninth Circuit had, had said? So to use a sports betting analogy, it looks like the NCAA is facing, they're facing some pretty long odds in this case, and ultimately prevailing now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I had talked, spoke with some people and, you know, they said it was like the NCAA, we have to remember, they're the ones that petitioned the Supreme Court to hear this case in the first place and at the NCAA and the conferences. And so, you know, some people had said it, that was somewhat of a risky endeavor. Um, you know, it, it could blow up in their face. Um, I'm not so sure it's going to be completely like that. I think 
Well, I think what, you know, if I could predict what may end up happening here is that like the court says, NCAA, you can't have all these rules, but maybe uh, the conferences can because the individual sports conferences, none of them control the entire market. So they could make rules and they could keep those limits and then they would compete against one another and the market would set, you know, what rules are reasonable and what are not based on them competing against one another. And none of and I wouldn't raise an antitrust violation because not one conference is setting all the rules for everyone. They're kind of competing against one another. So we could see them go down that line. And that was one of the arguments that the, um, the athletes brought. They said, at the very least, let's go that way. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see if that maybe comes into play. Well, Zach, I mean, this will certainly be um, an interesting one, uh, having the justices weigh in on this. Um, for anybody who's looking to play a really fun drinking game this weekend, you can listen back to these oral arguments every time they mention the word amateurism. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyways, thank you so much, Zach, for uh, for joining us on the show today and talking us through this one. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, thanks for having me on and uh, anytime. Well, Steve, we got through it. Your first time uh, co-hosting the term. How did it go? How do you feel? I feel really bad for the producer who's going to have to edit and go back through all my stops and starts. Shout out to uh, Daniel. That's, that... <laughs> <laughs> Danielle, I hope you're editing this today. Um, no, I just want to say thank you so much for, for letting me uh, participate today. Natalie is going to be back next week, so uh, much more capable hands than my own. Um, but, but it was really fun talking with you. Thanks for having me on. Yep, you did great. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney, special guest, Zach Zagger, and contributing reporters, Kelsey Griffiths, Jeff Overly, and Allison Grandy. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats, and for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. Oh, and please, please write us a review. A good one at that.